We're in 1 Samuel 17. It is a, it is a long chapter. I'm going to read the chapter to you um, in its entirety. For us, the Word of God is much more powerful and, uh, than I am, that's for sure. What he has to say is much more important than what I have to say. So we're going to read chapter 17. Just a quick introduction. Remember, as we get into the scripture uh, this morning, we're witnessing this transition in the life of Israel. They went from a theocracy, a people, and, uh, a, a people ruled and governed by God, to a monarchy, a people ruled by an earthly king. And we saw Israel's first king. His name is Saul. Saul was the king that Israel wanted. It was the one that they wanted, not the one God wanted and gave them a job description for. And God made it clear that their decision uh, to want the king that they wanted, not the one that he wanted, was a rejection, really, of her only covenant king, God himself. The Lord said to Samuel, after he warned the people, he warned them and said, this is not good, this is, this is rejection. And God said to Samuel, listen, they didn't reject you. Samuel, the prophet, the word of God, they're really rejecting me from being king over them. Then in the midst of Saul's rebellion, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks, you know, he's rebelling against the word of God come from the prophet of God. God spoke to him again in chapter 13. Your kingdom, Saul, will not continue. Your son will not be heir of the kingdom. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. It won't be your son. It'll be a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord told you and commanded you. Chapter 13. Then in chapter 15, we see the same thing, this rejection of Saul. You have rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel tells Saul the king. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and he has given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Chapter 15, verse 28. And last week, we met that new king, the king after God's own heart, the king that was better than Saul, and his name was David. David is the king that God chose for Israel. Saul, in contrast, was the one they chose, and God gave them, really in part, as a judgment against them, to teach them a lesson because of their idolatry and rejection of the one true God. We met David last week. He hasn't spoken yet. We met him. We said that he was a man God has set his heart on. We looked at that description, and it, it really has to do with the place the man has in God's heart, rather than the place God has in the man's heart. David did not come about as king as a result of spiritual solicitation or the result of Samuel's prayer. Ultimately, David's story begins where your story begins, in the eternal heart of the sovereign God. Last week we met David. He's Jesse's youngest son of eight children, eight boys. He's a shepherd. He's a young lad who, if you remember from last week, he was left out of a very important meeting. The prophet of Samuel came to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, he came with a heifer to sacrifice. All the children had gathered together for the sacrifice and this meeting and this gathering, except David. He was out in the field. They didn't even bother to come and get him. And as each child was brought before Samuel, Samuel looked at, the, at them and God told each and every one of them, not the guy. He's not the guy, Samuel. Stop looking at the outward appearance because he thought, oh, this must be the guy. God doesn't look at the outward appearance alone. He sees what? The heart. He sees the heart of man. Don't look at his height or his statue. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. David, the youngest man, was left, the youngest boy, yet David was the one that God chose. Samuel will anoint him with oil, a picture of the spirit that would come, and then we notice that the spirit of God comes upon the king, David, He's filled with the Spirit. He's, he's anointed, which means Messiah. He's Messiahed. And the Spirit of God rushes upon him. We meet David. And now we see the first thing David does. Or the second thing David does. Chapter 17, 1 Samuel. Chapter 17, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Philistine gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephas Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line 
of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, Goliath of Gath, whose height has, excuse me, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung over his shoulders or between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's dam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the men were already old. Uh, excuse me, Saul the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of the three sons who went into battle was Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul, the king, and to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring them token. Bring them, bring some token from them. In other words, let me know what's going on. Verse nineteen. And Saul, and they, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left his sheep with a keeper and took the provision and went as Jesse his father commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle, to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. He will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David says, verse 26, he speaks. And he said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, I love this, what have I done now? (laughs) What, What was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words of David that David spoke was heard, they repeated them in the ears of Saul, and Saul sent for him. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took up 
and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Verse 39, 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor and tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took a staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I've come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell and he fell on his face to the ground. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed them. There was no sword in his hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Hope you're not hungry. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, kind of a a recap what happened earlier, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. If you remember last week, chapter 16, David is anointed. As I said, the spirit of God comes upon him. But we find David at the end of chapter 16, already in service at the court in the king's palace. He is with King Saul. He's in the service of King Saul. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 23, of why he was there with the king already. If you remember from last week, verse 23 of chapter 16, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands so Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. If you remember, the spirit of God rushed upon David and the spirit of God departed from Saul and the evil spirit, a harmful spirit, was upon him and David was called to the service of the king. The future king is now with the first king, and you don't even know it. And now chapter 17 opens up with a familiar sight, a battle. So here's simple outline with three steps, three, three headings. The fighting giant, we'll look at Goliath. The faithful shepherd, and then the final victory. That's where we're headed. So number one, the fighting giant. Number, verse one of chapter 17, the Philistines gather their armies for battle is a familiar sight. 
The people, remember, asked for a king to fight their battles. They were enemies of God. And one of those enemies that was always instigating was the Philistines. They were a threat. They were a threat throughout this narrative. And they will be a threat even to the place of killing Saul, the first king of Israel. The Philistines first appeared in chapter 4. The Philistines again appeared in chapter 7 where it says the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel at Mizpah. And if you remember from that chapter 7, the Lord radically delivered them from the threats, but they didn't annihilate them. The Philistines continued, and actually as they were fighting against the people of Israel, it was actually part of the motivation that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 8 for them wanting a king. God gave them that king, and he said, God actually said this of Saul, he said, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Saul, I'm empowering you to be the king to fight against the Philistine. And that, if you remember, in chapter 13 became a reality, and he fought against them um, at mismatch, if you remember, in chapter 15. But, if you remember from that chapter, Saul made a rash vow and said not to eat, and all kinds of difficulties arose, Arose, And at the end of that battle, it actually says that the defeat of the Philistines was not all that great. In other words, they'll be back. And here they are again, fighting against the Israelites. Family, let me just tell you this. Always remember, in the, in the Scriptures, you read the Scriptures, the enemies of Israel, and there were many, are ultimately under the sovereign providential care of God. They do not do anything. No enemy can do anything without the providential sovereignty of God. Read that in Job. And what I find very, very revealing as we open up chapter 17 is in verse 1 when it says the Philistines gathered, it's in the active voice. And in chapter 2 where it says Israel's were gathered, in verse 2, it's in the passive voice. In other words, The chapter opens up with no clear sign, no clear sign, no active trusting and faithful sign of any leader of Israel. Saul, once again, is passive with the army of God. And it reminds me of Genesis 3, when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to her eyes, and the tree was a desire to make one wise. She takes up the fruit and eats it, disobeying God, and she gives it to her husband who was with her. Passive man. Passive Saul. And Saul sitting idly by, and we, and he meets a very large fighting machine, a champion named Goliath. In verses 4 through 7, we have a description of Goliath. He's a champion, literally meaning the man of the between, the man of the between, who would fight to death in, in representative combat with an opponent of an opposing army. The battleground was Sokah and Azekah, and it's a place in the western foothills of Judah in the valley of Elah. Elah was a valley with two mountains where both armies were. It was about a mile wide from what I understand. And both armies could probably see one another, even hear one another in their taunting. So when Goliath shows up on the scene and he pranced about challenging the Israelites, it was quite a scene. <laughs> uh, Goliath makes quite an impression, I'm sure, on everyone. In fact, The Hebrew narrative that details his description is the point of how intimidating he was. Over nine feet tall. Some say, well, that was why he was wearing his helmet. Whatever. Nine feet's big. 126 pounds of male armor. He's wielding a spear with a 15-pound iron head. His male armor, when he's wearing his armor of 126 pounds, uh, uh, male armor means it was scaled. In other words, it was a piece of armor, metal upon metal upon metal upon metal as it's scaled down, connected with either thread or some sort of leather. Man, this dude was sheathed in metal. Remember back in chapter 13? Remember how the Philistines were technologically advanced with metalworking. They were were one of the first civilizations to use bronze and iron and making them into weapons from chapter 13. We read that. And here's this man, his his physical stature, his armor, his weaponry, and his shield bearer uh, before him. He's seen as someone who is absolutely invincible. That's the point. 
That's the point of this description. Goliath moves into action like a, 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 a superhero, a super villain, completely unstoppable. That's the description that we get. But the lesson, family, the first lesson that we learn that God tried to show us in chapter 16, where we not just warned against paying attention, unwarranted attention to outward appearances. First it was Eliab, Jesse's firstborn son. And Samuel's like, that's the guy. Look how big he is. That's a strong dude right there. That must be the king. And God says, stop. You're looking as man sees, only in the outward appearance. But listen, I see the heart. Another object lesson is right in front of them. They're in fear of this giant man. Man is mesmerized. The, the army is mesmerized by the outward appearance. But God is going to work in the heart, move on the heart of David, so that he sees not as man sees. David will see as God sees. Family, sometimes we need to see as God sees. We need to stop the worldview and see things in the worldly perspective, but have spiritual eyes and see the way God sees things. In in our evangelism uh, class we're doing, the first thing we learn is that we need to be filled with the Spirit, yielded and controlled by the Spirit so that we will see as God sees, live on mission with Him. And what does this massive man do? As as his outward appearance of this giant, he taunts the army of God. He defies the army of God. He ridicules the army of God. For how long? How long does he ridicule them? Look what it says. Verse 16. 40 days. Sound familiar? See where we're going? 40 days. Jesus was tempted and taunted by Satan after 40 days in the wilderness. Now, in those days, the pagans, the pagan worshipers, the polytheistic multiple gods worship was the god of the territory. They were territorial gods. And here the the Philistine army is taunting Israel or Israel's God as they're stepping into the Israel nation. In other words, what they're saying is, hey, we're in your nation. Where's your God? The God, this territorial God you call upon to help you. Where is he? Verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man, he says. Give me a man, verse 10, that we may fight together. If he wins and he kills me, will serve you. But if I win and I kill him, you will serve us. And verse 11 tells us what's going on. Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Greatly afraid. And family, that's what giants want to do, right? That's what, that's what giants want to do. Giants want to taunt us. Just want us to be Fearful. We struggle sometimes, don't we, to be courageous, to overcome fears in sharing our faith with people, talking about Jesus with people? Do we sometimes shrink back and, 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 and give in to fears by sharing the word of God with others? At times we, we cave into pressures, we cave into pressures around us, and we give in to fears. You know, we may look tough on the outside, Many times on the inside, man, we're, we're plagued with fears. We're plagued with fears about our marriage. We're plagued with fears about our kids. We're plagued with fears about jobs and situations going on. We're plagued with fears about the future. Perhaps we're even plagued with fears of our addictions and the struggles that we have that nobody knows. Broken relationship. Don't raise your hand, but doesn't that resonate with everybody? That is why the story is so familiar. So many people, to so many people, because who among us cannot relate to that bully named Goliath who wants us to act in fear, not in faith? Right? Of course, terror. And as believers, it really does come down to this. The fears we face and the fears that we surrender to really is a defiance in the face of God. It questions God's goodness. To not stand in all of God's promises is to give in to fears. Goliath, listen, Goliath is called the uncircumcised Philistine. Over and over. Why? Because Goliath, listen, Goliath was not part of the covenant promises of God. Believers, listen, when we allow our fears to overtake our faith, we're standing not in the trust of God. We are standing, not trusting in the covenant promise of God that had been given to us in the gospel, in the new covenant of the blood shed 
Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. The fighting giant, the fine God, evoking fear. And then comes on the scene, the shepherd. The faithful shepherd. We know again, verse uh, chapter 16, the Spirit of God is, uh, pours, uh, is poured out upon him. The Spirit of God is rushed upon him to accomplish the tasks that were before him. And that kind of sets the stage, what we're going to see. And, and this story really is, it's not primarily, but it really is an example, a wonderful example of a man who has faith in God. If you remember, if you read your New Testament, there's a book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11. It's all about faith. It's about the faith of Abel. It's about the faith of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even Joseph and Moses and Rahab is mentioned in that chapter. And David and others. What do all of them have in common? It's called the heroes of faith. But what do all of them have in common besides faith, which they do? The other thing that's in common to all those people is sin sin none were perfect and what their faith was pointing to is the true and the better hero who is of their faith the object of their faith the lord jesus christ teachers and sunday school uh teachers sunday school teachers often make the mistake and they make david the hero in this story yes david trusted the lord yes david's trust in the lord should should point us though To see God, the glory of God, which is the object of faith. What David did, David did in conjunction and in union and in power by his Savior. And you and I are meant to read these stories and see the example of a a man with faith in God, faith in the living God, but most importantly to see what God will do through the man of faith. So David is the youngest of Jesse's kids, right? He comes on the scene, verse 12. And the first thing we read about him is that he's obeying his father. He's going back and forth. He's, he's playing the lyre with Saul in the king's service. And he's going back home and he's shepherding and taking care of his father's flock. Playing the lyre and he's shepherding at home. And the father tells him, listen, come here, boy. Take some food. Take some cheese, some bread. Take the food. Go down to where the battle is and, and give it to your brothers so that they're refreshed. Give some to the commanders and then bring back a report to me. You know, just like a, you know, a concerned dad. Bring back a report to me. He leaves the sheep, a hired hand, and he goes down to the battlefield and he's talking to his brothers. And as David is talking to his brothers, who shows up? Goliath. Shows up on the scene And as he's done for 40 days, he's taunting the army of God just as he's been doing. But this time, David hears him, verse 23. Again, in the face of Goliath's defiance, Saul is afraid. Saul is passive. The spirit of God is not upon Saul, but shepherd. David, the shepherd boy, David, we see, appears to have the marks of a man controlled and yielded to The Spirit of God. David hears what's going on. Notice in verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away their reproach from Israel? He's not asking the second time, even though it's already said. He's like, Really? Is that what we're talking about? Like, you're asking the wrong questions. You're headed in the wrong direction. No one has said anything that was right up to now. So let me speak the first real question, the real theological reality, into the scene. Verse 26, B. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David's motivation was not, oh, king, we're going to be living tax-free, or, or we're, going to be, we're going to have money, or I'm going to have a wife. You're, you're going to give us your daughter. It was to defend the honor and the glory of God. David is not looking at the outward appearance, but with the heart of God. The Israelite army see and hear an intimidating giant from the Philistine camp who looks and sounds invincible. But David, David, however, hears and sees a blasphemous, defiant Goliath. You see, worldly standards, worldly view, sees a little boy fighting a giant when really it is the mighty God fighting a puny little giant. That's reality. 
Many are frozen in fear, but David sees reasons for taking action. David sees beyond the hopelessness of the valley of Eli, and he sees clearly that God has given the victory. The men of Israel see an overwhelming, fearsome giant who is a reproach to Israel, but David sees merely an uncircumcised Philistine who has the audacity to reproach the armies of the living God. But notice David is not only fighting Goliath. David's going to fight multiple fights here. I want to point that out to you. His brothers are ridiculing him. His brothers' words are dripping with sarcasm and contempt. Look at verse 28. He says, why are you here? Who is watching the few sheep in the wilderness? And then he says, I know your presumption as if he knows everything. Uh, I know the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle as if he can see the heart. Well, first of all, he's there because his father sent him. He didn't leave the sheep. He's got a hired hand. And you can't see everything and not for nothing but to see the battle. I'd say, what battle? I don't see no battle. I see you guys scared to death on one side and this army militant Goliath taunting you. I don't know what battle you're talking about, brother. Ain't nothing going on here. That's what I would have said. And I love David's response. What have I done now? I love it. Was it not but a word? It's like, you guys have been picking on me my entire life. <laughs> what have I done now? And I said, even King, even Saul, look at verse 31 through 37. And, and verse 33, the, the words reach the king, what David has said. And they're like, yo, you, there's a kid here. And, verses, and they bring him. Verse 33, they bring David to uh, Saul. You're not able to, what are, you, are you kidding me? Are you, are you able to go against the Philistine to fight with him? For you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. And David's like, listen, O king, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Your servant will go. He'll fight the Philistine. Man, I fought lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. You know what I mean? Like, I've attacked them. I've taken lambs out of their mouths. And when they thought they can get me, I pulled them by the beard. I grabbed them. I killed Look at all the eyes in there. I fought lions. I grabbed them. I caught them. This blasphemous giant who defies the living God, he's not a problem, king. Blasphemy is punishable by stoning. Verse 37 is where the crux is. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Who's the hero? God. God. Yeah, I did this, I did that, I did that. You know what? Ultimately, the Lord did it. The Lord did it. The Lord delivered me. The Lord will deliver me. The Lord has delivered me. He didn't even take credit. He didn't even take credit at the end. He doesn't say, you know what? I've been practicing all my life. I'm ready. Or you know what? We're just going to trust good luck and happenstance. I'm ready. God has said he will deliver me. And God has delivered me. And what David is doing, or we need to do, what David is doing, we need to do is look back in faith, in trust, And that will empower us, listen, to walk forward in faith. He will deliver me. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And that's the principle. The principle is what God has done for David in the wilderness before, God will do in the valley of Elah. The the abundant history, if you've been walking with the Lord, all his past goodness, all his past mercies upon you, including the one final mercy that we need more than anything, that's the gospel. Listen, God's past goodness should cultivate our faith as we walk in the future, in the now, in the predicaments. In David's memory, shrouded with faith, God has already delivered him. And he will. God is adequate. God is enough. And he will handle the present situation. That's what David is saying. It's so vital to see that, family. It's very vital to see and to remember God's past deliverance. It's not about David mustering enough strength. It's not about, and he does. And it's not about mustering enough courage, and he does. David's ultimate hope, his final hope, is in God alone. As important as faith is, it does not, it does not take precedent over the object of our faith. And that is the Lord himself. Remember, the Spirit of God was poured upon him, was poured out on David to do the plans and the purposes of God. Then after a little... <laughs> After this, 
Saul brings him in and says, here, I want you to put this armor on. You want to fight? All right, put this armor on. Now, Saul, remember, was very tall, taller than everyone in Israel, if you remember his description. And he gives this young David the full armor to put on yourself. And you can only imagine David trying to put this armor on. What, what, what Saul is saying is, I'm a king. I'm a king like all the other kings. And I only see things from the external and the appearance. Um, we're fighting a, a giant with armor. So therefore, David, you need to fight a giant with armor. Match to match. David's like, this is not going to fit. This is not going to work. I, 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 I haven't tested it. Look at verse 46. He takes off his staff. Look, he takes off. He's like, I'm not wearing this. And what does he do? He takes his staff, the shepherd's staff, chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine, Goliath. Man, movies are made of this, right? Actually, there is a movie made of this. A sling, if you ever see one, is a pouch with long, two long cords. You would put the stone in. By the way, it's not a pebble. It's not a little pebble. It's a rock. And they would swing it and then let go of one cord, and it would swing out. It would open up, and the rock would fly out towards whatever that which you're, you're trying to hit. As David approaches Goliath, Goliath does what confident people do. Does he not? He mocks him again. He mocks him again. Verse 43, am I a dog? Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He sees the the shepherd's stick in his hand. And the Philistines cursed David by his gods. Goliath said, come to me. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'm taunting you. I know, I know I have the victory. Some of you know, I, when I was younger, I used to do a little boxing. I fought in Junior Olympics and stuff. And my first battle, my first fight, I'll never, ever forget it. Getting my hands taped up, getting it wrapped up. And I remember getting up from the bench, and I had three other guys standing there waiting for me on the other boxing team. And all they did was taunt me. Oh, man, I will we'll give you anything if you just don't hurt us. And they would taunt, my first fight, I was scared to death. I was 12. I won. But anyway, that's not part of the story. <laughs> but that's what's going on here. Now, <laughs> now it's David's turn in an epic speech dramatizing this conflict between the God of Israel and the God of her enemy. David emphasizes, listen, Goliath, you're trusting in your superior military resources. I'm trusting not in that stuff, not in the worldly stuff. I'm trusting in the name of the Lord our God, the one that you have defied. Now, again, remember, in ancient times, uh, the, the military uh, victory strength proved its nation's deities. See, this battling going on of deities. And many of the polytheistic in antiquity assumed that any nation beat another nation, did so because their God was, was superior. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword? You're talking about my stick? You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin? I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword or a spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. Into our hand. Here David is promising, not just the Israelites, notice that, not just the army of the Israelites, he's saying both the Israelites and the Philistines, everyone around will know that salvation has come, deliverance has come, not by sword, not by spear, because the battle already belongs to the Lord. He he will give us into our hand all the superior military might and strength and armor and resources are inadequate against the one representative of God. Ten million against God, one for God. The odds are for the one. And all too often, though, we read this story and we read this story and we are drawn into a false understanding of it. And you see, We love underdogs. If you're a Met fan, you love underdogs. I should have said that. Billy was here at the first service. You love, okay, I'm glad you got that too. 
You love underdogs, right? I mean, we love underdog stories, and we think no matter the odds, you can do it. Just believe in yourself, and Christians are, are prone to believe that way as well and, and fall into a, a, a false interpretation uh, that it says, you know, if we just trust God, if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, if we, if we just fight the fight of courage against our giants, he will deliver us from sickness. He will deliver us uh, from a bad job, a broken relationship. We will be healed. Just claim the victory. Be a man of courage and be like David. But that misses the whole point of the narrative. God does not want us to read this story in this narrative and come away with some smug self-confidence that just given the right confidence at the right time, you can achieve whatever you set your mind on. That's not what this is saying. Yes, David was able to overcome insurmountable odds, right? The interpretive problem comes not from recognizing that David, that David was the underdog. The problem lies in, listen, the problem lies in with identifying ourselves with David. This may strike you as bad news, but in this story, you're not David. I'm not David. You and I are the cowering, helpless nation of Israel. The faithful shepherd. Look at verse 49 through 51, and we'll see this even more clear. Verses 49 through 51 tell of the final and familiar victory. David runs to the battle, takes a stone out of his pouch, puts it in his sling, swings it, one swing and the rock, flies out, and it strikes Goliath right upon his head in one place that he probably didn't have covered. And down he goes, it says, face down on the ground, dead. And because David didn't have a sword, he runs over to Goliath, takes the sword out of his sheath, and cuts off his head. One could only wonder what happened to the shield bearer. He probably didn't find a job after that. Right, he's the, only, he's the only Philistine that was glad that Goliath was dead because if he was just injured, he'd be the first one dead, right? Because he didn't do a very good job. And, and as we read this, yes, there's, a, there's this personal faith. There, there's a desire uh, of David to, 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 to do and work and, and, and follow and be active in the purpose and plans of God, yes. And he is a man of courage. He's motivated, listen, by the zeal and the glory and the honor of God. He is motivated, he finds courage as he manifests utter trust and dependency upon God to, to save Israel against all odds. Is not David's energetic zeal and childlike faith as portrayed here in this narrative exemplary for believers? yes. We should desire the glory and the honor of God. We should act so boldly by the Spirit of God as he does. But that's not the main point. Are we just encouraged to face your giants, to, to, to pull up the bootstraps, to be like David, to look at our giants and get the five stones, maybe prayer, reading, you know, and you name what they are, and then face your giants? No. The narrator before us is the narrative before us is shrouded in the light of representative warfare. This is not simply one man against another. It's Israel against the Philistines squaring off. It represents the God of Israel, the one true God against the pagans. God. Both David and Goliath say that very clearly. And David goes to the battle line, right? He's assured, not because he finds himself particularly worthy, but because he sees the battle for what it is. It is the battle that belongs to the Lord against the gods of this world. And when David wins, listen, when David wins, kills the giant, the entire nation of Israel shares in his rep representative victory. Even though they did nothing to help, they share in David's victory. If he wins, the people win. If he loses, the people lose. Listen, in other words, he was not just fighting for them. David was not just fighting for them. He was fighting as them. David is the Lord's instrument, bringing about the Lord's vengeance upon his enemies. David acts by faith. He is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. But David is pointing to the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate anointed one, and that is Jesus Christ. 
He comes, Jesus comes as our champion. Jesus comes acting in our place. Like David, Jesus comes to Bethlehem. Jesus comes in weakness and obedience to his father. Like David, he does not look like the great warriors of his day. He comes in humility to fight for his people. We do not fight our battles or or, or, or our fears against our giants by imitating the things of this world. We go in the strength of God by the armor of God. And how? Through the gospel. Closely, look at this again. Goliath was dressed from head to toe in what is called a coat of mail. In other words, he's covered with scales of armor and he looks just like a serpent. Here is David coming as the new and better Adam, not the final Adam, that's Jesus. And he first takes on the dominion of bears and and lions and now he comes as the serpent crusher. He deals a fatal blow and cuts off the head of the serpent. What does that point us to? Genesis chapter 3. In the midst of sin and brokenness and chaos, God speaks to the serpent that enticed Adam and Eve into sin that unraveled the world, bringing judgment and sin to all mankind. See, he, Adam, was the representative. Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all have sinned. And God speaks and promises to the scaled serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall crush your head while you will bruise his heel. That's the promise of the gospel. The proto-evangelium, the first gospel, that Christ will come and crush the head of Satan. Now listen, we stand in a situation similar to Israel. We need a representative to save us from the threatening giant of sin and judgment. That's the greatest problem. Listen, that's the most important problem. That's, that's the problem that uh, stands out and behind all of the problems of our life is alienation from God because of sin. And listen, just as Israel in our narrative was hopeless, just as Israel in our narrative had no winning strategy, we are the Israelites hiding in the tents, afraid. Unable to deal with our sin, with our guilt and our shame, God's judgment hangs over us, stands over us like giant Goliath did, and we are powerless to stop him. What we need, like Israel, is a representative to encounter on our behalf the giant of sin Judgment, shame, brokenness, and hell. Remember back in chapter 5. The Ark of the Covenant was taken to the Philistine camp and placed next to their god, Dagon. And the Ark was there, and then next morning, what do we find? We find Dagon, head cut off, flat on his face, next to the Ark of God. And Goliath, just like their idol, has his cut off head cut off and face down. You see, your enemy looks down at you and says, fear me, you're a runt, you can't handle this, I will destroy you. The giant stands in his own justification, his own self-promotion. And if we think, listen family, if we think we can vanquish our fears by fighting the same way by the world's weapons, by building our self-esteem, by building our self-justification, by self-promotion, we are setting ourselves up for failure. You know that you're headed in that direction when you think, I could do this, I could do this. Uh, I'm strong, I'm courageous, I want to be like David. What we're saying is, I'm a good Christian. I read my Bible, I give tithes and offerings, I do all this thing. God will absolutely, no matter what, give me what I want. Again, you're not David. (laughs) You're not fighting Goliath, you're the frightened Israelites. We don't need someone to expel our fears. What we need is someone who enables us to be more than conquerors. The Goliath in our lives have already been defeated at Golgotha. The cross, the giant of sin, death, and separation from God has been overcome. Listen, Jesus stands in our place. He absorbs the wrath of God in our place. Therefore, we have confidence in the face of every fear and trial. In Christ, we have no need to be afraid of death. In Christ, we have no need to fear the future. In Christ, we have no need to fear what others say. In Christ, we do not need to fear the unknown. In Christ, we are one with him. God does not give us, 
God does not give frightened people. God does not give frightened people an example to follow, but a champion and a savior to fight for them. He doesn't deal with your fears through motivation and simulation. He deals with your fears through substitution and imputation. Jesus takes our greatest fears, took your greatest fears, excuse me, head on by dying in our place and being clothed with his righteousness. He clothes us. If you believe in him, you're safe. He took everything we deserve. And now you know, you can know that he will never leave you. Listen, David is pointing to the real and better champion, Jesus Christ. He saved us, not in spite of being weak, but because he was weak. He died, he was crucified, he was killed, and he rose again. Family, listen. He took the punishment we deserve. He took the giant that we deserve. And if we believe him and we trust in his sacrifice, he accepts us. And by his perfect life and his obedient death, his atoning work on the cross, he conquers fears. And he vanquishes fears. If we were to say to David, David, should we be like you? David would say, like me only by trusting in God and the gospel. The one who truly saved us. The one who truly stood in our place. The one who truly died for our sins. Jesus is the true and better champion. Jesus is the true and greater king. Jesus is the true substitute who stands in our place and defeats our enemies. That's the point of the passage. Do you know that? Let's worship. Father, thank you. We worship you. We thank you for the story. We thank you for what we see and what we read about David. But ultimately, Lord, we thank you that the true champion, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who who defends us, the one who died for us, the one who stood in our place and defeats our enemies is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, when we trust him, we are in him. And our fears will, will dissipate as we stand and preach that gospel to ourselves every day in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our troubles. We will trust in you and you alone because simply of the gospel that you love us, you died for us, Lord Jesus, and rose from the dead, and now we belong to you forevermore. There is nothing, no nothing can separate us from your love.